Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Relentless Boats, custom aluminum fabrication down in Thibodeau, all the kind of features and designs you'd expect from a boat builder down on the bayou in Thibodeau, so check them out, Live Relentless Boat Relentless, RelentlessBoatsLA.com. And we are mid-January, and we are, first of all, going to say we apologize that we missed last week, and I'm sure many of you uh are probably wondering what's going on but uh we just been uh Kyler's been out killing stuff and you know just typical whatever scheduling happened and 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 it it slipped up on us so we apologize but uh we have a great episode in store for you on this one to kind of make up for our absence so Kyler mid January and I'm referring back to a couple of episodes ago when we talked about how I said I wish we could go back and rewind November and you disagreed and I gave the explanation that once we get past November things speed up and now mm-hmm. we are squarely in the middle of that and I feel like well I don't feel that way we are like approaching the end of the season and it feels like it's just completely slipping away and um, I, I don't know how you feel about that but I'm kind of bummed. I, uh, I'm a spectator for the rest of the season. Um, I thought, I thought I was going to be a spectator, um, about a week ago, like, like last week. Um, and I did one week at the camp where I was camp bitch for a week at my own camp and had a, a bunch of buddies over hunting some of my polo clan spots. And, um, and, uh, I literally, 
I, just to tell you how how bad it got is me being, um, you know, a camp bitch as my friend Watson calls it. He he he. That's what he refers to himself as, and uh, that whole that whole joke of like not all Indians were killers. Some people had to like make fires and like pick berries and stuff, mm. and that's kind of what his joke towards himself. But um, I. <laughs> I have a, a blackstone at the camp, a 22-inch blackstone, little griddle top thing. I'm, you'll probably both know, know what that is. But I, uh, I got it because my camp didn't have a stove when I bought it and when I was fixing it up. So I have a single burner like stove top that's propane, and then I have a blackstone. But the blackstone didn't come with a hood attachment. So they've been out of stock for a long time. I got a hood attachment in. I put it on the Blackstone because I've been, I don't know why I had this goal, but like I had this goal to cook biscuits on the Blackstone. And you can only do that if you can like contain the heat and you need that griddle. You need that, that, uh, you need that, um, that hood, hood attachment for it. But instead of making biscuits on Saturday morning of like last week, you know, the week after the, the bear podcast came out, all my buddies are hunting public land and I'm baking chocolate chip cookies at 11 a.m. because I, I was out of tags. I had nothing else to do. This is, this is what, you know, it sounds cool to be tagged out. And then all of a sudden you realize you're tagged out and you're done hunting. And, and then you realize that you don't like, it's not, it's not hunting deer. It's not killing deer that you like about hunting season. It's hunting until January 31st is what you like about deer season. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so I tagged out on December 28th, but then Levi let me come and hunt his place with his DMAP tags. And I shot a buck on Sunday morning. And I think it was pretty close to where you shot your buck on his place. If I'm not mistaken, I haven't talked to him about it. Uh, So, I mean, I I don't, I don't know. I don't, I I have no idea. But, but that was, uh, so I mean, I've killed a lot of deer this year. So what you're saying is, so first of all, let me tell you, I'm, I'm squarely in the midst of one of the worst deer seasons I've ever had. And that goes all the way back through the historical conversation for people that listen to us every week for whatever reason and know about our struggles on our uh, Midwestern trip in November and all that. But So I have killed a couple of nice bucks with my bow, but they're, it's one of those deals where it's a few quick hunts that turned out really well, kind of just all at once, and a whole lot of disappointment in between. <laughs> like, I'm talking about to the point where hunting three and four days at a time and seeing, like, one deer period Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff so it's i I would just i would just say that i've been in your shoes before where i'm trying to find someone to let me hunt somewhere that i can get to with the time i have because i can't hunt at home because i'm tagged out and all that kind of stuff and i know how you feel but i think i feel worse um i think (laughs) my situation is worse because i actually feel like most of the time here the last several weeks when i'm when I get done actually hunting, I don't know what it is that I've actually done because I'm just, I mean, I I went as far as to go, um, last weekend I I hunted, I actually hunted with Jacob, the, 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 the fellow that owns Relentless Boats, um, our presenting sponsor. And he, he took me or told me I could come out and hunt at his place. So they have a, a long, like 250 yard long food plot right in the middle of their 
700 acre property and it's absolutely just just a perfect spot I, I won't bore you with too many of the details but it's got a lot of diversity all around it it's, it's very easy to see how the deer funnel into that area you know and it's 250 yards long and on one end of it they have a feeder that runs all year and the, the food plot looks really good and there's bedding all around and he sends me pictures on his phone video pictures basically every weekend sitting on a stand looking at this food plot of all the deer that are there and like two or three of the top four or five deer that they've killed since they've had the property came off of that food plot and he tells me right where to go he's like look go down here this is where all the deer come out they feed they eventually funnel their way down towards where the feeder is but you know if you're bow hunting you know go go here go there and that's where the deer typically and he's like it's a guarantee he's like i mean there's deer there all the time you're gonna see i didn't see a deer not a deer i sat there from one o'clock until dark and he's like i literally think in five years of having this property that's the first time anyone has ever sat on that food plot and not saw a deer and and Mm. typically not saw multiple deer and it wasn't like i had the wind the wind was good everything was right it's just sometimes the luck's not with you but yeah I will say, you know, for your sake, I'm glad that you finally caught one slipping with uh, with, <laughs> <laughs> with your uh, D-map tag. And we were able That's to... fine. So, so <laughs> what Locke's referring to is, um, so Locke hates when people say they get it done. So anytime I kill a deer, I tag Locke and I say, Locke, I got it done on, on Facebook. And then, uh, and Locke's point is, what exactly did you get done? Were you, did, were you hired to kill this deer? Was it... Were, was it a did, was there a contract out on it in which you were paid for its execution? You know what did you get done? What did you accomplish? What was the task at hand? And so my my one of my pet peeves is I I hate it when um, people say I caught one slipping, and um, and and I I thought deeper about that, and I really maybe I don't like it for the for the wrong reason. I'm not sure if they mean they caught one slipping like it's it slipped up and it showed itself and i killed him or but usually the way that they're using it in a sentence is i caught one slipping like like it was trying to slip by me like it was trying to sneakily walk through the woods and which which way do you take that line well i i the way i take it is that much like the phrase i got it done I think most people use it without thinking much about it. That I don't think. Sure. They per- that, but I think if if people were to break that phrase down, and I think what they mean is, I think what they mean is they caught one out and about trying to slip from one place to the other, and you know he was this deer that that never makes that mistake, and so it's kind of somewhere in between. Maybe it's a little bit of he slipped up, but I think I think it it, it probably means more like in their mind the deer was slipping from a to b in the daylight and they caught him doing it yeah and, see, uh, i don't know uh, maybe i'm critical of it because like you you what like that translates in like you saw a deer walking yeah is what you saw well there's a way to define that i mean because if somebody catches a deer walking out into a food plot to feed an hour before dark and they're there and they see the deer and he's out there feeding and they shoot him you couldn't use that context because he obviously wasn't slipping from place to place. Now, if you got into a stand and you caught a deer going back to his bed right after daylight, well, then maybe he was slipping. He was slipping back through the woods trying to get to his bedding area, you know. So, but again, just like the, just like the phrase that I don't particularly <laughs> care for. I don't. I think it's just one of those things that it it 
it's a cliche kind of thing that we all just say because we've heard it so yeah. many times and it's just said. But anyway, that m- well, much of our ramblings. So, so um, when when did you go hunting with Jacob? When was that? That was Sunday. Or go on place. Sunday. So um, right before so, the front came in and started sleeting and snowing and all that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was cool. Yeah, I forgot. We need to talk about that. Um, so when I hunted with Levi. Um, we hunted, uh, uh, Saturday, I got in there Friday night and, um, Saturday morning, he and I hunted the same place, exact same place or about 300 yards South of where you and he hunted on the last episode. When we talked about you, um, the coyote came by and then you ended up seeing the two bucks walk by. Well, um, (laughs) uh, you know, Levi's not like um like super outspoken like he uh he's uh, he listens more than he speaks and um but every once in a while he'll say something and he's kind of like a little zinger and i was in the blind and in levi's in his saddle on the tree over from me and um <clears throat> he's got his camera and um i kind of i don't want to say i whistle at him but i'm i kind of go you know like and i snap my fingers trying to get his attention because I heard a stick break behind me, and it was a coyote. And so I grabbed my bow, and I start to turn around. And like I, I've said this a lot of times, I think a coyote is the hardest freaking thing to kill in the woods. They are so alert. And um, I don't know if he heard me breathe wrong, but he, he didn't catch my wind. But he, he looked right up at me and then bolted off the other direction. And uh, <laughs> Levi goes – Probably that damn coyote me and Locke saw. Because <laughs> and, and, it was almost in the same place, you know. Yeah. And and we had seen a buck come through that morning that was a shooter. And um, uh, th- I think that's that's a notable thing to say about, you know, hunting with Levi. I don't get to use the word shooter very often where I hunt. Like um, like like a, a buck that, like, hits a certain size where, like, you're like, yeah, we could kill that one. Because typically – if you see a buck, he's like, you could kill that buck. You know, there's not mm-hmm. a whole bunch of like prerequisites it needs to meet. And, um, and so, um, we climb down and we go and look where you and he had hunted. Cause the wind wasn't right for us to hunt exactly where we all were. And I ended up finding that dead head. Did you see that? I that, saw the picture. Yeah. Picture? So, um, he, he, uh, he scored it. And as it stood like with some, with a couple of years of squirrels gnawing on it, it scored a 146 and a half with a 22 and a half inch that spread. Yeah, and, um, and you know, if, if you haven't learned by now, I've got a, I've got a, um, I don't know, a, a sense of humor where I, I kind of like to sometimes make people feel silly and, um, it, it makes the joke better, a better experience for me. And so I put it on the story that we found a big shed and we were looking forward to seeing how big it'd be next year. You wouldn't believe the amount of messages that I got from people telling me that it was not a shed. That, that, <laughs> Just <laughs> miss the not, obvious. If I, it, I'm not kidding you. If I didn't get 50 DMS and Facebook messages from people saying, um, buddy, Hope you're joking, <laughs> but that deer's, I hate to tell you, but that deer's dead. It, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It was, I should probably count them up. It has to be more than 50. It has to be. And so if you sent me a message saying that it was a dead deer and not a shed, 
I probably responded back to you just thank you anyway. Um, but I, it was a joke. That is the joke. That was the joke there. If it um, makes you feel better, I got the joke immediately. But then again, yeah. I talk to you on a regular basis. So, Well, about 1,800 people saw it on the story, and 50 people did not get the joke. <laughs> um and and wanted to correct me so it was it was pretty good i i got a good laugh at it so mm. thank everybody for that but um anyway uh so the next so uh we hunted that property saturday morning and then on saturday evening we hunted um the i think it was real close to where um you had shot your buck over there and we didn't see anything that evening and then it got dark like too dark to shoot too dark to see and this deer came up the slough, real walking, real, real slow. Like, as Levi put it, he said, when we climbed down, he goes, I never saw his antlers. Um, he goes, I saw his reflection in the water. But he goes, just the way that he walked and kind of came through here real cautiously, he goes, I think that was an older deer. And um, and Levi hunted next to somewhere else the next morning. I kept my stand there and um, hunted there Sunday morning. And, um, don't know if it's the exact same deer or another deer, but had a, a, a nice buck come through and he was, uh, he was an eight point with a broken brow tine. So he was an actual seven point, um, and real nice size deer, 183 pounds. We cut his jawbone out and it was, I think, um, Levi put him at four and a half. So it was a nice size, nice. It, he, he looked younger. I thought I shot too small of a deer at, at first, like too young of a deer. And it was just a post rut rundown, you know, a lot of saggy skin on his neck. Like he had lost a bunch of weight, um, yeah. buck and, uh, he was older than he looked. So, yeah. um, anyway, pretty cool, pretty cool experience. Yeah. Well, you're having a banner year, so get ready for a terrible one next year. I had I had my terrible year last year. Yeah. It's, so it's next cool. year I'm on pace for an average year. Uh, you know, wow. last year was my god awful year. I'm so, ready for and, next year because if that's the case, then I should be in for uh, a really good year next year. I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, anyway, let's let's get let's bring our our guest on. Um, we we've uh, t- this episode we're going to be talking about. Um, a topic y'all have asked for over the years. I, I've probably been asked this the most um, over the last three years of the podcast, and that is how to get into bow hunting. Like from absolute step one, don't have a bow, never shot a bow or got or bow hunted in your life. How do you go from either not hunting at all into bow hunting or making the transition? Um, from rifle hunting into bow hunting. And so um, we called on our good friend Craig Stanky out of Wisconsin to join us. And Craig's on the phone. So, Craig, thanks for joining us tonight, man. Yeah, no problem. I'm uh, looking forward to having a discussion with you guys and uh, seeing where the conversation goes. Absolutely. We're, we're professional BSers, if, if you couldn't tell from that intro there. So, uh, so we're, we're happy to let you join the, that party with us. Um, well, the, the, the topic tonight, like I said, is getting into archery. And this is a, this is a topic that we've been asked about for years, but maybe I'm just now getting to it. Maybe I've gotten enough requests about it that I think it's, it maybe this time to do it. We kind of skipped over the whole getting into archery thing. Um, 
and jumped into tactics and gear and hunting styles and all of that stuff. But um, we've been asked pretty recently, pretty pretty frequently over the last few years about how do you how do you go from growing up rifle hunting in a box stand over a food plot and that is what deer hunting is to you and how do you get into um, breaking out of that box uh, no pun intended and hunting the rest of the woods and killing stuff at 20 yards Um, the reason why we reached out to you is because of your experience in the archery industry because your family has had an archery shop for most of your life if i'm not mistaken um, in Wisconsin. And then most recently you've been with PSC archery for 15 years. Um, and then you recently left, but you've got a, a, a larger scope of the archery industry as a whole. Um, then I think your average archery shop worker, Bowtech archery owner would. So really looking forward to learning about that, uh, and kind of getting your perspective from what you're seeing across the country. So, um, Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and some of your background. Yeah, uh, well, I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, like you said, my parents owned an archery shop growing up. I guess the best way to describe me getting into archery myself is when I was about five years old. My dad would, uh, the archery shops up here are considerably different than probably the archery shops down by you guys. um, Because when it comes winter, there's nothing to do in the middle of the winter up here. And so if you have an archery shop up here, you have an indoor range with it as well. And, uh, that, and a lot of archery shops up here have indoor ranges out to 40, 50 yards. And so when I was five, my dad would always go shoot in an archery league and I always wanted to go with them. And, uh, at some point in time, you know, my mom let me tag along with dad and, uh, got to watch the arrows sail through the air and just, probably was awe-inspiring for a five-year-old, you know, and kind of got me intrigued about going into archery. Um, So I picked up a bow when I was about five years old and uh, sparked my interest, really got into it, um, and started to get into the competition side of archery, um, traveling for ASA tournaments and IBO tournaments and (laughs) NFAA tournaments. and then I eventually went to work for the local archery shop up here and I was a cleaning boy at first. And then I learned how to fletch arrows on the fletching wheel and then slowly worked into uh, a bow technician at the shop. And then when I later on in high school, I would manage it uh, during the slow times of the summer and the owner would pretty much let me run the show. And then from there, my parents ended up buying an archery shop and, are owning an archery shop and so had plenty of experience doing that and then right when I graduated college I applied for a job at PSE and I thought I would never never in my world would ever thought I would have got a job with PSE right out of college and that's what I did and that picked me up and moved me down to to Kansas City Missouri and uh, so I spent the last 15 years working for PSE based out of um, Missouri. I live both in Kansas City and St. Louis, and uh, I've managed every state from Iowa and Nebraska all the way down to Louisiana and Mississippi. And like you said, touched probably 400, 500 archery shops in between. 
That's awesome, man. That's a that's a pretty cool career path, and and it's I I know I think you and I talked about this last time we talked. I got to see a lot of archery shops in the state, probably eighty to ninety percent of them, and um, I feel like I even I have a unique perspective to the fact that you know I could I get to I know you know Sammy Romano at Shags and Metairie, all the way up to Simmons Sporting Goods, all the way to you know, wall hangers in Deritter, all the way up to, you know, H&H, Hoot and Holler in Bossier City and, and everybody in between. And um, that's that's not something that your average bow hunter is going to have like that much experience with. Typically, I don't say you're stuck. That's the wrong word. But you are you're at 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 the the mercy of whoever is within probably less than 40 miles from you. You know, like that's that's who your archery shop is. And a lot of times whether you realize it or not, the brands that that shop carries is going to be the brands that you're going to hunt with or have options to buy. Um, and, uh, and so having that unique perspective of 400 plus archery shops and seeing how everybody does it differently has got to be pretty unique in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, like you said, the, probably best case scenario for most people is that they're going to a shop within, you know, 40 miles. Um, and if you're in a bigger city, you might have a couple art, a couple, uh, what I would call independent archery shops. So a mom and pop owned business, um, within a bigger city. But if you're, if you're on the country, you're probably 40 plus minutes away from somebody easily. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, I don't think at this point in time that really there's probably uh, one brand that's building that much of a better product than another brand. Uh, they're all very, very good. And, uh, and, and for all manufacturers from their entry level price point bows to their, their top end technology bow. Um, and when you, I mean, I, Luckily for me, I get the chance to shoot them all when I'm traveling on the road and seeing all these shops and anything from your entry level bow. Um, it's got better technology in it than your high end bows had from 15, 10 years ago. Yeah. So the, these low end bows, I mean, they, the performance that's built into them, um, the lack of vibration and noise that are in them all the way up to the top tier stuff. Yeah, it's it's very easy to get into archery right now um, because the equipment is so good and versus um, like I said, me being around the industry forever versus 20 years ago, you know, we were shooting bows with 80% or uh, excuse me, 50%, 60% let off. And now we're shooting 80%, 90% let off, which makes it really, really easy to hold back and comfortable for everybody. Sure. Well, um, let's let's talk about getting into it from um, a a bow perspective first, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about form um, uh, and and also gear in general. Um, I don't think we'll get that much into tactics and like the approach from to the woods because that's about the majority of what season one and two of the podcast was. Um, it, it, as a segue to that, um, Locke, I, I do have some people that want to hear an in-depth conversation about, um, wind direction and playing the wind and, and, uh, how to 
enter and exit your hunting area based on wind and, and all that stuff. So that, that should probably be another episode. Um, but in general, um, let's try and keep it on um, do's and don'ts of getting into the sport, uh, gear, um, cost expectation. Um, and then uh, I even have a few things I want to talk about, about like um, hard lessons learned, you know, things that people can avoid that I think some, some other people may have done the wrong way, regrettably getting into it also. Um, but as, as far as let's talk about your first bow. If you're somebody that is thinking about getting into archery, what's your suggestion for, um, for a first bow for your first year hunting? Yeah. So uh, my suggestion right out the gate would be 100% fit. And when I say fit, um, that is a bow that is designed specifically for an adult or a bow that is specifically designed for a youth uh, archer. Uh, a lot of times people associate um, my first bow with the lowest price point bow that's out there. And mm -hmm. so you see a lot of adults that are running around with a bow that does go to their draw length or that does go to their draw weight that they need. However, it's designed for um, a youth model bow. It wasn't designed to be maxed out per se on the longest draw length and the longest draw weight. Um, the bow is designed to grow and with a kid that, you know, may start out at a, let's call it a 22 to 23 inch draw, which would be really on, honestly, on the low end of the spectrum. Now, there's a lot of bow manufacturers making bows that go shorter than that, but it's really just not even necessary for them to go down that low. Uh, most of your archers are going to start out 22, 21 inches and go up to 30 as they grow. Um, so I think the biggest thing to note is if you are a full grown adult over 18 or out of high school, uh, that you should be looking at an adult bow for, um, for your first bow or to get into to archery. And if you're a youth, you should be looking at one of those adjustable bows. Yeah. And, uh, the, and the big reason why that is, is like, uh, a youth bow is, is it, it's sweet spot is designed for the middle draw lengths and the middle draw weights now it will go longer draw length but that's for a kid that is growing and that will eventually transition out of that bow um, so probably most likely your entry level price point for a new archer is completely out uh, it should be out it should be out of the question um, and and the biggest mistake that i see is that an adult is buying that super adjustable youth bow when they should be into just a slightly higher, more expensive price point, you know, $50 or a hundred dollars more. And they're going to have a, a bow that fits them perfectly. It was designed for a full grown adult. So, so are you, are you talking about, um, like to, to give some name brand examples so people know what we're talking about, are you talking about like a diamond infinite edge or, um, like a mission, highly adjustable bow, that type of thing. Yeah. You could, um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my research here. So you could go from a bear cruiser, which is like an entry level bow. You could have a bear or excuse me, a diamond SB one, a diamond infinite edge, a PSE uprising, 
a mission hammer. Those are all entry level youth bows. They're not an entry level adult bow. Gotcha. Okay. Locke, what were you going to say? I, I was going to, well, and I, <clears throat> I, I was going to, I wanted to get your feedback on, on coming at this at uh, another direction. And it's one that I have been, I have seen this before myself. And so for the person that is, isn't a, you know, this is the adult hunter has, um, you know, let's just paint the scenario that this person hunts in a, you know, in a group at a hunting camp or something like that. And there's several guys there that they're friends with that bow hunt and have been bow hunting and they have, you know, top of the line bows from whatever their, their choice is. And this person decides they want to hunt. Uh, they want to get into bow hunting. And instead of focusing on fit, uh, they don't go buy the, that, but they go and buy just whatever is popular and and most expensive because in their mind if i'm buying the most expensive top of the line bow well then it's going to be the best bow with very little um you know with very little consideration made to okay well yeah this is a very nice product but is this the one that fits me best you know and i don't even know how to shoot a bow so is there like a middle ground between Hey, don't go just because your buddy who's been bow hunting since his dad started him out with a youth bow when he was 12 and he's shooting, you know, the latest and greatest PSE and all that, you know, a bow is is it a common thing from from your perspective and what should, how should people try to find that middle ground between look, don't don't just go buy a product when it comes to archery, don't go buy a product because of its marketing and because of its price point and just assume that because it's the most expensive one then you're just going to put it in your hand and, and you're just going to be an archer from day one. Yeah, there's there's a lot of middle ground in there. I mean, when, when I speak for entry-level adult, though, you're looking at 399 to $449 um, type price point for a bow. And most of those are like what we call a package bow. So it comes ready to, ready to hunt. It's got a sight on it. It's got an arrow rest. It's got the quiver, the stabilizer, the peep. So you're coming with a package bow at that entry level price point. So you got from 400 to probably $1,100 of bows that come in at each price point in the middle of that. Uh, you know, and when you get to the $600 to 749 <laughs> type price point, right now there's a ton of value in those bows. Um, as far as you're getting almost everything that comes in on the, the high-end technology bows or, or high-end technology um, and shootability as those, but it just doesn't have the price point on it. And that would be, again, a, a spot where if you're willing to step up and spend a little bit more money that you get a good bow and that it's a proper fit for you, um, it, you know, it, it'll tune up and shoot an arrow um like the absolute high-end bow will uh, the that bow that high-end bow it's a big commitment when you're dropping eleven hundred dollars just for the bow and then you're going to put another most guys are putting at least easy another thousand dollars on accessories on those high-end bows um, so you can get fully outfitted for 800 bucks and have nearly all the technology that's on those high-end bows so yeah tell me this maybe i'm <laughs> this okay so this might be ridiculous on my part but you know that coming from my perspective and this is the from the perspective of 
a guy who's soon to be 40 years old and started shooting a bow when I was like, I don't know, eight or nine years old and started hunting with a bow when I was 12 or 13 and, and have, you know, uh, basically up until I got out of college and I bought my own bow, I never had the high end stuff. You know, I had what my dad would buy me and stuff like that. And I feel like, I feel like I'm a better archer because of it. I, I honestly feel like when I got out of college and I started working, if a friend of mine had taken me to the archery shop and I had just bought a, you know, the most forgiving shootability uh, terminology, whatever thing out there and, and learned to learn to shoot with that and not spent all those years having to really focus on being a really good archer at, in terms of form and all those kind of things because I was shooting a bow that was far less forgiving and I had to really be good at what I was doing to be effective with it. That made me a better archer. And I wonder, in y'all's opinion, like, is there maybe something to be said for, hey, go out and get a middle-of-the-line bow that you've really got to learn to shoot and get good at, and, and that'll make you better when you do step up to a bow that's more forgiving and easier to shoot? I, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I would say that the the average new archer in that exact scenario that you're talking about, somebody that's coming into an archery camp, they see all these guys shooting these high-end bows, and they think, if he's shooting that bow and he's shooting that good, I'm immediately going to have that same success when that's anything but the truth. Uh, you know, it, like you said, let's focus on technique and form and shot repeatability and doing the same thing every single time. Uh, and I mean, you could have terrible form, but if you're, uh, if you're doing the same thing every single time, you're going to shoot good groups. Now, if you add, real good form on top of that that's where you start to extend your range out so you know a guy a guy with great form and great technique and great habits can shoot really really well at 20 yards and the same thing with a guy that's probably got poor form but is really repeatable he can shoot a a, a really good group at 20 yards the difference between the two is when you step out to 60, 70, 80 yards, um, the guy with good form technique and repeatability, he's still holding that same tight group at those longer distances versus um, the guy that's just repeating the same shot every single time. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, um, I've got a, a little tangent I want to go on when it comes to gear and high end gear. Um, don't, don't mistake this isn't for y'all. This is advice to the people listening. But don't don't mistake people's quality of gear for their quality as a bow hunter themselves. And I'll give a great analogy to that. Um, a good friend of mine is a du- used to be a duck hunting guide for five years. Uh, duck and goose. He was in Gaydon, and he said when he had a guy show up at the blind in all brand new camouflage and a twenty five hundred dollar shotgun, he knew he was going to be the worst hunter in the group. Okay, like when you have all brand new gear and all the best everything, typically, typically, that is a lot of times an overcompensation for lack of skill somewhere else. And so just because somebody has a $2,500 bow rig at the camp doesn't mean that they're able to get close to deer and execute the shot in the moment. So um, I think when you're starting out, 
don't do the comparison game. Don't worry about what other people are shooting. With that being said, you also don't want to be shooting a 1998 PSE Nova either. You know, there's, there is a bottom there as well. Um, but, um, you know, a good package bow that is that a, a five to $600 package bow today is like Craig mm-hmm. said earlier, probably just as good, if not better technology than what the premium bow was 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, you know, we, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast and that, Gear doesn't make the bow hunter. Your skill set and your woodsmanship makes the bow hunter. And um, the the other thing about that is we do need to talk about costs and cost of ex- expectations. There is no way. Just get this through your head now. If you want to get into bow hunting, it is going to take a substantial immediate initial investment. It might be $800, it might be $1,000, but the bow is just the tip of the iceberg. You're going to need a stand, you're going to need arrows, you're going to need to figure out what broadheads you want to shoot, you're going to need to figure out um, all the other gear that you need as far as like um, cold weather gear, camouflage, all that stuff. So if you are, you can't skimp on the bow and like pick up a, you know, a, a very, very old Hoyt uh, you know, from, from 2004 or like a, a Bowtech guardian and that has modules that don't fit you or cams that aren't your right size and it needs a new string. You know, when, when we talk about getting a new, uh, getting bow, you want to rely on probably something new today or relatively new the last few years. And that, that you're using your Bowtech's, guidance on to help find you your local archery shop um because it could cost you buying a 300 used bow that needs new strings and cams that that don't fit you that you need new cams to you're going to spend more money outfitting a bow that wasn't right for you from the beginning than if than if you bought a package bow that was ready to go perfect set just for you you know yeah (laughs) don't go buy a new or a used bow uh, off the internet and take it to an archery shop and spend another $250 or $300 in, in service fees and parts and warrants and cams and mods and whatever else to get it all set up. That's a very, very common mistake amongst new archers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think as a whole, a, a new archer goes, Oh, I can, I can buy this bow off a, uh, off the internet or i can buy it off of somebody locally and it's going to fit me just fine because it fits them just fine um but well every that's... every bow is going to have to get fit to the person specifically um so you know everybody's face face shape is different as far as how to the string is going to contact their nose for an anchor point to be able to center the teeth site um to draw length. So like I, I would highly recommend to go to the professional, the, the local archery shop, um, and just go try some price point bows. They're, they're very, very good for what's in them. Yeah. I would yeah. say for people that are listening to this and they're thinking, cause I, I I'm running this through my mind and I'm, I'm trying to make sure i'm 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 trying to i'm covering the flank on the devil's advocate thing you know 
Um, yep. And I'm thinking of the person that's thinking, okay, well, that bow has the same, you know, draw length is a measurement. A number is a number. It's a number here and it's a number there and 20 inches is the same 20 inches over here as it is over there and you know that kind of thing and if you're thinking along that lines when we're talking about this and you're saying well you know i mean i I, my draw length is 28 inches and you know this is 28 inches the same i can tell you and i know you guys would both agree that i can you know i shoot a 28 inch draw length with a string loop so it's you know i'm actually probably holding back uh, from release i'm probably about 28 and a half and and i typically shoot it depends on the bow but between 65 and 72 pounds but i can tell you unequivocally for years and years and years now i can take a table of bows that are all set the exact same numbers wise and they don't all fit me the same. They may all be set to 68 pounds with a 28-inch draw length with the same size string loop, but they all fit me different, 100% yeah. different. And, you know, there's things that are done like, you know, twisting your cables and, and, and different little things like that and different accessories that you buy, different ways that your peeps tie it in, different ways that your string loop is tied on, all those kind of things, to, to Craig's point, that make a big difference in... The way you hold back, the way you anchor, the way your face is shaped, you know, tw- to, to put it lightly, uh, not lightly, but to, to, to put it very plainly, 28 inches in the archery world isn't always the same, you know? Uh, no, it, it's not. And um, the overall length of the bow, so axle to axle or the string angle and the way it comes off the cam um, could affect the way it sits on your face, you, the style of release you shoot can affect your draw length some of them are got the some releases have the trigger right on on the jaw as far as there's no offset on it and that can lengthen your draw length and some other releases have the the trigger set back from the jaws so it it'll shorten your draw length a little bit no yep i i I think we've emphasized this point in numerous conversations on this podcast in many different ways. But I think Kyler would agree with me, and Craig, I'm sure that you would too, given your background. If there's one thing that you can take away from this podcast, and there's lots of other things for us to talk about here, but not to bury the lead, but if there's one thing that you can take away from this, if you want to get into archery, accept the fact that it's not a rifle, it's not a used four-wheeler. It is a custom piece of equipment, and if you want to be a good archer and you want to be ethical and owe it to the animals that you're shooting at, you need to accept the fact that you can't just go pick up a bow and, you know, that your buddy's selling used or just go buy whatever your buddy's shooting and just go do whatever the bow shop throws on it and just go start shooting it at deer. you got to accept the fact that a bow and arrow is a custom piece of equipment to every single person that has one, and if you want to do it the right way, you got to accept the time and the money and the commitment that comes with that. That that's the right way to do it, and that's just the yeah. bottom line. For Absolutely. for the for the new archer, the the training side of it or the practice is is what it's all about. It's just repetition um, in shooting the bow, and it's not just about slinging arrows down range. It's about making the perfect shot every time because that's what truly what it takes so it's it's focusing that your grip remains in the same position every time that you're 
you know, that your release hand is in the same position. You're looking through the peep and you're centering your pin and the bow's level. It's all that stuff. So once you get really repetitive at all that, then make the step up to a high end bow and the commitment once you've gone down that road. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. there's, I mean, Kyler, you get both of you guys sound like you probably shoot. I mean, I know Kyler shoots a bunch, but you understand that the amount of time that it takes for that thing. It's a, it's a major commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, you know, cause I switched to PSD this year. I switched to the carbon stealth Mach one and in doing so it wasn't, it wasn't a hard transition. Um, uh, you know, I shot my prime for years and years and years. It was a 2013 prime impact and I love that bow, but it was like, it was like carrying, um, uh, a, a, a a center block into the woods. It was long, bulky, heavy, and then going, and it was 35, I think it was 35 and a half inches axle to axle, which is not cool these days. You know, a long axle to axle bow is not the cool thing anymore. Um, and now you've got to be like, you know, 30 inches, 28 inch axle to axle. You got these things that are damn near vertical slingshots, you know, that, that have such short axle to axle and such low brace heights. And, um, when I went from that 35 inch bow to, I think the, this, the Mach one is what 33 or something. Um, yeah. that's a two inch shorter bow. And I got it on a Thursday and I was hunting with it on a Friday and I, I had it dialed in out to 60 yards, probably faster than I had ever dialed, gotten my HHA tape sighted in, um, with my prime. I really, I really believe it was, it was I, I got to my 20 and 60 yard marks dialed in faster with that PSC than I had with my prime before. And um, making that transition wasn't hard because I know how to shoot a bow. If you gave me an elite today, I could kill a deer with it tomorrow. It doesn't matter what bow it is. Over the years of shooting bows in general, I like you said, I know how to line up all the different parts of the bow to have an accurate and repetitious shot sequence um and when you're starting out you really need guidance on on building form this this shouldn't be a trial and error miss a couple of deer try and get better at shooting wound a few deer and lose them try and get better at shooting thing this is you know ask your bow tech for help say hey this is how i shoot would you mind watching me? Do you have any advice? Can you tell me if my form is good, et cetera, et cetera? Because it, it shouldn't be a relationship between your Bowtech and you where he puts a peep sight in, makes sure you got the right draw length, and sends you out the door and says, good luck. Um, you know, your Bowtech and you should have a great relationship over time to where you trust him and he trusts, you know, you to come back and be supportive of his business. I think that's a, a good, a good point to make there. Also, when you say it that way is if you're a new, if you're getting into archery for the first time, go to a bow shop where there's a local bow tech. Don't go to a big box store to buy your first bow with, you know, where you're, and you're not getting that you need that personal attention to get you started now to your point i mean you and i could probably go buy a bow from a big 
big store and just have the guy that's there get our peep site tied in for us and and set the draw and send us out the door we could take it home and get it squared away and and hunt with it but if you're a first-time guy go somewhere where somebody is gonna give you that personal attention because you need you really do need it yeah yeah just to just to add to that uh, from the years of me going in and out of archery shops and the amount of uh let's the amount of consumers that come into uh, a dealer shop or, or yeah, independent mom and pop shop that I've seen year after year after year going back to those guys and getting set up. It, you, just, you just can't count it on all your fingers and toes, you know. Um, but the those independent archery shops, they're still in business for a reason, and that's because they – they're very good at what they do. Um, they wouldn't be in business anymore if they weren't good at what they do as far as tuning a bow and working with people with their form. So when you go buy a, a bow from a pro shop, you're not just buying that product. You're buying the service that they provide with it as well, which is they they get you draw length all set up. They help you get the bow sighted in. They're working with you on your form and technique and setting all those things into place. Some of the better archery shops that I've been in over the years, you can watch somebody come in to the archery shop and, and they'll flat out tell you, hey, I'm new to archery. My buddy wants me to get hunting, uh, get into hunting this year. What do I need to do to get set up? And you watch them go through the whole process. And if you got that good technician – they can become a very, very good shot um, in a very short period of time if that customer is willing to simply listen to the the archery tech that's in there. Yeah, yeah. I, you I know, you know, and, shop at Bowie's for two years, and I, I can attest exactly. You know, another thing to keep in mind is, you know, I think we've talked about in the past. We've talked about this uh, spheres of influence and the people that we listen to around us and in our network and whatnot. But um, your your buddy that's been bow hunting for three years might not know how to shoot a bow very well. So, like, listen to what he says, but then go, like, confirm it, trust but verify, and ask your bow tech if, if that's correct. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, bad information spread out there, and I'd rather y'all get good, confirmed, professional expert information on how your form should be and what you should and shouldn't do um versus listening to a buddy at deer camp that killed the deer three years ago with his bow you know um so just be cognizant of the fact that not everybody knows what they're talking about um so you think yeah yeah except me um, and you kyler we know what we're talking about you can i yeah i didn't i didn't know what i was talking about last year you shouldn't listen if you shouldn't listen to anything that i said last year about killing a deer whatsoever this year should probably listen to what happened this year. <laughs> last year, I didn't know anything. I thought I did. I knew a lot up before last year. And then last year, I forgot everything that I knew. Don't listen to anything I said last year. And then this year, I can help you kill you again. <laughs> yeah, you're, the, you're the deer slaying expert, man. Everybody just hit up Kyler. He knows what's going on. <laughs> no, I... I uh, I've had, I mean I've had a good season as far as as, as encounters and uh, you know I finally honed in on some places that are have a good deer population and and that's that's something that this has stuck with me for a long time and I don't think I've said this out loud yet but 
if y'all go back and listen to, I think it was episode two or three. It was the episode with Frank Sullivan back in 2018. It was Frank Sullivan and Travis Links. And Travis Links um, had killed a really big deer in, in St. Francisville area. Frank Sullivan had killed a 220-inch deer, 27-inch deer in, in, in St. Francisville area. And Travis Links made something, made a comment that was so simple, and it stuck with me for years now. He said, if you want to hunt big deer, you have to, I'm sorry, if you want to kill big deer, you have to have big deer to kill. They have to be there. Like they have to be in the area. And so if you can't hunt, um, attack a Paul WMA and have an expectation of killing one fifties only, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. If the deer isn't on the property for a hunt, you know, 50 miles in every direction, you'll never kill one. And I finally, you know, found some good places to hunt that are, um, have bigger deer walking around and more deer walking around. And I have, uh, ruined a couple of uh, a couple of deer's days this year. It's been a good season. Well, so so <clears throat> we tend to digress a lot, Craig. But uh, I'm going to try to <laughs> I'm going to try to steer us here. So before we get too far down and and start running low on time, one of the things that we talked about prior to hitting record that I think a lot of people would like to hear from you, it, just in your experience traveling around the country, once you do get past all of these sermons that we've just given you about how you should go about getting your first bow and you now have your first bow what are some of the things that that you've seen around the country where people can um do as far as outside of just shooting in your backyard and and, and taking that out to the woods and hunting you know what are some of the things that are going on in, in different parts of the country for for people to shoot and being more involved in archery and obviously that involvement and that practice is going to go a long way. So what are some of the things that you've seen and and people should search out? Yeah, I mean there's obviously the the 3D archery circuits and and clubs that are going on. Uh, you've got from a national perspective the big shoots with the ASA or IVO or NFAA and uh, they've got um, clubs set up all over the country they host state shoots and they host national shoots would be a good opportunity to go out and that just hones your skill in a completely different way than standing in front of a piece of paper or standing in the backyard when you get around other people and you're shooting it's pretty easy to pick out people who are very good and pick up tips from them. So that's, those are good opportunities. Uh, even just from local perspective, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know how it is probably down in Louisiana per se, but I know there's a lot of local parks that have archery ranges in them. And, uh, and you can always just talk with the people that are at those ranges and, and get tips from them and those people at those ranges they know where to send you um they know where the good bow shops are uh it's it's pretty eye-opening there's a lot of people with good information out there right now yeah well and there you know we do the 3d archery tournament and i think that's one of the ways that you and kyle are really connected to begin with was with your work in our area as a rep you know you ended up attend attending one of our shoots is, is that correct <laughs> Yeah, so I had, um, at the beginning of 2020, so January 2020, I took over 
um, for PSE, I was running those, the Southern States. So I was doing Mississippi, Louisiana. Um, I call them Southern Arkansas, Oklahoma for me. Um, and so I was running that territory and I was going to make, uh, my first or my second trip down to Louisiana and I was calling on a couple shops and I became, and I was going to spend a full week down there. And then I was going to spend the weekend down there and, and uh, travel, continue traveling the state the following week and heard of uh, the Louisiana Bowhunter tournament. And so I just thought it was a, a unique thing and thought, hey, I'm going to go stop in and just visit with a bunch of archers and see how everything goes. And that's how I ended up meeting Kyler. Um, it's kind of a unique scenario and it's one of the better tournaments. <laughs> Honestly, it's the best bow hunting style tournament that I've seen in years. And it's just Thank the you. way it's categorized. It's the uh, as far as the different level of bow hunter classes that you guys have. It's the fact that it's bringing in new people into archery. Uh, it's the it's just the community of it all. Cool. Yeah, appreciate it. That that's uh, that's very kind of you. We you know that's a that's a fun tournament, a fun event for us. And um, I uh, I that was the first time I met you. And now I will I will say. I think part of your nice words that you have to say about it comes from the fact that you won first place in a thousand dollars in the um, the bow hunter division. So you might be a little biased <laughs> towards it, you know. But um, but but to to get so I'm going to segue that into a, a back to a point I made earlier. It's not the bow; it's the bow hunter. That, that where the ability and where the, the proficiency comes from, because you won that class with a um, PSE full throttle, which is um, arguably one of the um, most hated bows of all time by <laughs> average bow hunters, but one of the best bows of all time by people that really like, you know, speed and that have great form. You know, I think the reason people hate it is because if you don't have great form, it exposes that very quickly. Um, but yeah, you won that with one of the hardest bows to shoot in quite a while, maybe ever made. Yeah, my my hidden secret for for years is being a sales rep and just kind of attest to buying a product and sticking with it and uh, learning it, shooting it and working on your technique is, is my, uh, my love of my full throttle. Uh, I bought, <laughs> I bought that bow as a sales rep when I, in 2014, when it came out as brand new and everybody raved about how unforgiving it was. Yep. And, uh, and I'm a speed guy. So I loved the speed of that bow and uh, however, over all the years of shooting it, I learned uh, that it was probably one of the most accurate bows out there um, if you gave it the time to shoot it. Yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, I when I came down there, this uh, yeah, gosh, it was like, yeah, it was like this year. It wasn't our it was a year ago now. Um, but when I came down there with that bow, it was a 2014 bow in 2020 and and won the tournament and i just i know that bow inside and out and how it shoots and shooting a hunter style tournament with it with a fixed pin sight um, i know where the pin gap's going to be at and i felt very confident going into that shoot beforehand um, with that bow 
uh, so yeah, when I, when I, first off, when I made the shoot off, I, I was happy, but I wasn't surprised about it. Cause I, I know how that bow shoots. Um, and, uh, yeah, just so happened to, to get lucky and win for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, that was pretty cool to witness. And then what was funny about it was I, like when I met you at the tournament, I don't think that I knew that you were with PSC. And I think the reason why it was because you're like, yeah, I didn't really want to say I'm the PSC rep and then shoot a, a, a seven-year-old bow or, uh, or a six-year-old <laughs> bow. That, that's not a good, that's not a good uh, look for me at the time. So. Yeah, well, it wasn't. So I didn't, I had just sold, so for PSC perspective, we had the Carbon Air and I had just sold my hunting bow before I came down there uh, for my Carbon bow. And I was using the full throttle as my backup bow. And we had just come out with the Mach 1. However, the only Mach 1 that I had set up was a sample bow. And so when I was looking at which bow I should shoot, I'm like, do I shoot a brand new bow and play the PSE rep card? Or do I just shoot Old Faithful that I know I can get away with? <laughs> and and uh, so I decided to shoot Old Faithful and tried to fly under the radar and look at where that got me <laughs> yeah because because when yeah when we when we talked a couple of months later as when you let me know you work for bsc i was kind of I, I was like did you win the tournament <laughs> was, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't you have like said that wouldn't have come out at some point in time but uh anyway that was funny but i i appreciate the kind words about the tournament that that is a fun event and it's it's kind of it's morphed over the years every every year is a little different um and uh this year i i, I think i'm going to keep the same format um with the uh, last year we did 30 targets um and we don't follow asa to, like the, the asa class rules we follow asa scoring because they have a good scoring system um and we do have a shoot down which is asa um uh you know esque um but as far as classes go i, I kind of entered I, i'll i'm gonna be critical for a second I, I i'm not an asa shooter i'm not a target shooter i'm i'm an outsider to that world i'm a bow hunter so what i see happening is this whole everybody wins a prize type of um, class class system that we have today where you can have 80 shooters in 10 different classes and um, and it's not just as simple as men women and age group it is men women age group and then subclass and subclass and then distance and known distance and unknown distance and, and on and on and on. And what you have is when, when it comes to bow hunting, I, I caught a little bit of flack the first year by not having a, a, a woman's class. Like all I had was a bow hunters class. And my, my rationale behind that was a deer is no closer to a woman when you're bow hunting than it is to a man. You know, there's no advantage that being a man or a woman has in a deer hunting situation. Um, And if these are deer hunting shots, um, uh, then why do we make, why does it need to be gender specific? Why can't it just be bow hunter and everybody's in that class? But, you know, we ended up bringing a woman's class in, got more shooters, that ended up being a positive thing. But um, ultimately, the the other thing is that we can't have so many classes because I want to give a lot of money away. 
you know, and you can't give a thousand dollar first place prize away when there's 25 classes. Everybody goes home with 75 bucks at that point in time, you know, um, and that's not that's not that's not enticing. That's not exciting, you know, um, so uh, it's a fun event. We like put it on and I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can have it this year with COVID and, you know, whatever phase Louisiana will be at that month in March. Um, and hope, because it's, it's too large of an event to have, like if it was tomorrow, we couldn't have it. Yeah. We were, we were right on the fence with last year with having that event. It uh, was that I think the I next got, day. Yeah. I think I got sent home like the next day or the two days after that uh, said, go home and stay home. It was March 14th or March 15th. And, um, the day of the tournament, they said we weren't allowed to have groups over 200 people, which we, we had, we, I mean, we had a hundred and I think it was 183 shooters last year. Yeah. It was, a, um, it was a great turnout. And then, and then, you know, 183 shooters means you've got probably 275, almost 300 people walking around. But with, you know, kids and wives and guests and family and and vendors and everything. Um, And so the very next day, it went from 200 down to 50. And then I think a week later, it said you couldn't have any events over 10 people. Um, And so, yeah, we I mean, that door closed hard and fast. Yeah. Um, And we've been living that reality ever since, you know. Um, So it's it's um, well, there is. There's no been no better thing for archery right now than COVID. To be honest with you guys, uh, for and both bringing, hunting, and yeah. bringing no and bringing new hunters into the sport, uh, right? So I think we're at an all time high of new people in the sport because people got trapped at home and they're trying to figure out new ways to to get outside. And the outdoor industry has absolutely exploded this year. Yeah. So we're going to have a lot of new archers in the field this year and a lot of new hunters in the field. And uh, I think as a community, we need to do our part to retain those people in the next two or three or four years down the road and teach them proper technique. Like everybody that's been a longtime archer should should take pride in getting somebody else into uh, our sport and protecting our heritage because it's been on the it's been on the slide the last three or four or five years. Yeah, uh, we had an explosion in the archery industry. Um, oh gosh, I'm going to screw up the dates. Probably 2009, 10, 11, somewhere in there was when the Hunger Games came out, and we had the Brave cartoon movie that came out, and we had the Olympics all like one after another after another, and so archery just absolutely exploded. Yet as an industry and as an outdoor community, we completely failed to retain those people and yeah. they, they disappeared from it. So this go around, I want to figure out every way we can to keep people into the sport and, and not because it's uh, my livelihood, but it's because it's what we love to do. And if you can get somebody to experience that feeling of sitting in the woods and having a deer at 20 yards and your heart beating out of your chest it's that whole experience that I think every hunter wants new people to have, new archers, new hunters to have. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I want, let's talk a, a little bit about form. Um, we don't have to get super in-depth on form. I, I actually have um, uh, 
a hard lesson learned by a friend of mine that I wanted to share. Um, he's been a bow hunter for a long time. I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. And, um, he was hunting in Kansas. I don't know how that subject keeps coming up this year. He was hunting in Kansas this year, twice, two different bow hunts. And, um, he had, uh, back in November, he missed about 140 inch deer, um, at like 23 yards. And then he did a late season hunt uh, about a month ago or three weeks ago. And he had a bigger deer that he was putting in the 160 class range. And he missed that deer at 18 yards and he shot over the backs of both of them. And when I was, and he, and he called me, we were talking about it. And, um, he pretty much said, what the hell am I doing wrong? I know how to shoot a bow. I, I packed up my arrows. I went to camp and I shot 150 arrows from 10 all the way out to 75 yards and I could stack them like quarters, but you put me in a tree stand under a deer and, and it's like, I've never shot a bow before. And I asked him to kind of like, tell me about his shot process and how he was aiming and if he was punching the trigger and, and we just went through it all. And ultimately I worked out of him that he wasn't bending at the waist what he was doing was at that elevated position when he wanted to shoot at a downward angle, instead of keeping that 90 degree relationship between the bow arm, left arm, if you're right-handed, your left arm and your torso, that 90 degree angle and like where your armpit is, what he was doing was he was dropping his arm, keeping his torso upright and changing the geometry of a shot entirely. And he had a totally different, shot style and in geometry from a tree stand and then then he did um from the ground and he said well how does that make sense i've shot deer out of trees my whole life and i said his name's lee i said lee how long how often are you shooting deer at 18 yards because a deer at 35 or 40 or even 50 yards you're not at that extreme angle if you're dropping your arm at those distances. Like you can get, a, there might be a two to three inch variance in impact from an arrow at a longer distance um, with that type of form problem. Then, but but it's going to be exacerbated. It's going to be um, exacerbated, exaggerated at a shorter distance when you're dropping, trying to shoot almost underneath you. And he climbed. He climbed up in a tree and he started. What he started doing was. I said, why don't you come, why don't you come to full draw like you're going to shoot level, you know, like you're shooting from the ground. I said, come to full draw, aim your bow level, and bend your torso, bend your waist, not your arms. Do y'all have y'all thought about this at all? Is this something that y'all consider ever? Yeah, this is. I mean, that's a uh, so shooting target archery and growing up on the competition side that's a pretty standard practice for that type of archery and anything you can do to keep uh, everything in position and what you'd say 90 degree right mm -hmm. uh, so arm coming into the bow your head in line with all that yes that's all going to help with accuracy there's a lot of little nuances that are uh, without going into a ton of detail that um, that affect the where the arrow impacts the target right or or the way the arrow um, shoots a couple inches higher or a couple inches lower i don't think i've ever i mean i obviously been in this conversation with you kyler because it's not the first time it's been mentioned 
But as I think about it, I don't think, I, I guess I'm, I'm doing it right. And so it's never been an issue for me. But mm-hmm. as I think about it, it's hard for me to imagine not bending at the waist. Like I don't know how you could do that and maintain your anchor point and your alignment. Like I think if I tried to do it the way you're saying he was doing it, I would quickly realize and just naturally subconsciously bend with the bow to stay in line because if I drop my arm that way, then... I would immediately realize that I was out of line and my anchor was off. Like I would feel it. Yeah. I think well, I, it's hard for me to imagine how somebody gets in that habit. I, well, so this, this is what, this is what, um, this is the way that it came about. Number one, he had been on stand and, you know, negative 97 degree weather for a couple of days. And so he was cold and, um, literally cold but also you know hadn't shot his bow in a while and was just kind of focusing on standing or sitting and being warm so it kind of what it was more and it wasn't really in like the prepared to make a shot mindset as he was i'm out here in a tree i hope something walks by me mindset and so um he when a deer came out he was a little more excited than he typically would be um i think because it was a break in the monotony and it was a very impressive deer breaking the monotony of, of bow hunting in the Midwest like that. But number two, he, um, this is, this was a, a, a larger part of it. He was, um, kind of caught off guard, guard by the deer. And when he, um, got his bow in a shooting position, he was sitting down, um, and sitting versus standing matters because when, when you need to bend at your waist standing up, it is literally, you know, not moving your hips and in 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 almost like bending your whole upper body over. But when you're when you bend at the waist sitting down, it feels a lot like leaning into the shot, like leaning out over mm-hmm. the deer stand for like almost like you're out reaching for the deer is, is how that feels and looks. And so what he said was he was afraid he was going to get busted. And so he, it's like he was trying yeah. to keep his movements so minute that he ended up going out of coming in a bad form because he didn't want to move his upper body. I talked about this a long, long, long time ago about how back before I got really comfortable being around deer, I would tense up my whole body. I'd like, you know, I'd grind my teeth and I'd flex my thighs and, and I was just like, I don't know what it was, but I would literally lock up. And that's what he did. He locked up his upper body, and the only thing he allowed himself to move were his arms. And so he didn't lean forward, and that's how that happened. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I can see that, but I, I, would, I would still think in my mind that I, I think I could figure it out after the shot. Like, I think if that happened to me, I can see, I can see exactly how that happened, the way you describe it. And, but I think it would be one of those deals where – Pretty quickly, as I went back through what the heck just happened, I would realize what I did because I just don't yeah. see how I could do that and not realize that I am completely out of line and, and out of form when I let the arrow go. But I, for, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, for an experienced hunter, it should be it should be pretty easy to recognize. For a new bow hunter, though, I don't think it's very easy for them to recognize yeah, that. Maybe um, because. It, it, uh, a new bow hunter is just not 
as in tune with the fact that, okay, my hand goes on my cheek in this position and I anchor here and all that needs to be square. And the tip of my nose is on the string and I'm centering my peep sight. It, it, that step-by-step process that us, us experienced guys just take for granted um, one step after another, that just comes naturally, naturally. And you don't have to think about it. Right. We've done it so many thousands of times that it just happens versus somebody that's new into it. And they're just throwing their, throwing their hands up there and, Oh my God, this is so much excitement. I can't handle it. Uh, And that excitement of a deer in front of you, it, Heck, it overtakes some of the best of us at times, you know. It does, it does. yeah. The, and and that's go ahead, Lock. No, go ahead. I, I was going to mention another topic about form, uh, but if you've got something else to add to that, go ahead, because I was going to kind of no, go ahead. The I'm I'm about to get off the form topic into yeah. something else. Uh, there was one thing I I Craig, I wanted you to kind of maybe explain this because you with your with your background and 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 shooting more um tournament archery and and then working in the shops and stuff and helping people one of the things that i know to be a big problem for new archers not only when they're learning to shoot but specifically new archers that go out bow hunting and they get a shot at a deer and and they have to maintain their composure to maintain their form right one of the things that i i know happens a lot is people grab that bow and they extend that bow arm out and lock it in. You know, that basically it's like they're trying to push the bow. They're trying to get the most out of the bow. And so, you know, obviously there's, you know, there's, there's an actual correct, relaxed angle that you should have your bow arm at. And I, it's something I've always struggled to explain to people when I'm shooting with someone and I'm trying to help someone, I, I'm actually better at just showing it to them because I don't know how to explain it. But if you know what I'm talking about, people, you know, they want to grip, first of all, they want to grip the heck out of the bow, and then they've got their arm just as, as far out, locked, as straight far out as they can. Explain why that's a problem and, 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 and what it is that you're actually supposed to do with that bow arm to get it in the right position. Yeah, so a lot of people, um, the, the hardest thing in archery for a tech to do or somebody that's experienced to do is to teach somebody how to properly grip a bow. Um, and, and grip is probably a poor term for it, but that's what it is. Um, it should be more of a contact point because everybody thinks they need to grab a bow, um, like they would grab a pistol or they would grab a baseball bat. And, uh, and that's just generally not the case at all. That, that bow should sit in just off the, the side of your lifeline on your hand, and it should sit on the, the meat of your thumb. Um, and generally, the tips of your fingers should be, uh, I always say, just touch the tips of the fingers to the riser, right, on the front end of the grip. And so it, it creates a very consistent um contact point for you or grip for lack of a better term right Mm -hmm. so what happens is when 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 somebody's excited or in that same scenario that you're talking about and they're they're grabbing the bow um, that induces torque into the bow and the torque the torque on the bow comes from the a couple of things it comes from the cable guard and it comes from the bow let off so when you draw back and the cams transition over and you're holding less weight. So it's there. There's a, the torque is the right and left 
that the riser twists within your hand. So the, the best thing for accuracy purposes is trying to keep that contact point, that grip in the same position every time. It's very hard uh, to keep it in the exact same position every time if the if your if your arm is tensed up if your grip is tensed up so having a, a having your arm relaxed and that grip be a contact point is is important in overall accuracy um, that's a good point yeah good way to put it yeah so it's um yeah it's it and uh to kind of go to what you're saying about having your arm completely flexed out i don't think that um there's a bad way of doing it because i shoot a very straight front arm but it my arm is just simply a straight fixed position it's not tensed up so i think the tenseness is what you got to try to eliminate so if you want to shoot a a little bit of a bend in your elbow to create some clearance so you're not smacking your forearm on the string i'm i'm fine with that it's um it's just eliminating that tension within the system of your of your grip and your arm. Gotcha. Good yep. way. Good, That's a great good, way to put it. Yeah. And and a great question too, Locke, because I, I I didn't even think about that. But that is something that I see all all the time as well. Is like you said, people like it's almost like their arms hyperextending. They have it so yeah. far, so far out, um, out, out forward. Well, yeah, a, a lot of people are afraid that. Um, this is this is kind of the trend of the marketplace right now is w- with these high let off bows is people are so afraid that that string is going to pull them forward. And so that's why they're just tearing so hard on the back on the back end. Yeah. of that bow. they're trying to pull through the string stop or through the, the limb stop because they're afraid it's going to take off on you. So a lot of that tension is that built in nervousness of I don't know if this thing's going to take off on me or not and what it's going to do. Um, it's, it's interesting to just watch the cam cycle from an experienced shooter to a new shooter. Cause you can see the cams are just, they have so much extra tension on them and people are pulling so much extra harder when they're, when they're a new archer versus somebody who's been shooting forever and the cams are in the right position. They're settled in on their anchor and they're not putting any undue or any extra attention into the overall system of the bow. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a, I hadn't thought about that that fear of it shooting forwards and fighting against that. Yeah. Um, well, so we talked a lot about bows. Talked a little bit about form. Um, let's talk about uh, the next two things that you need to go into the woods, which is accessories and arrows. Um, my input on accessories is that if you buy a package bow, um, you probably can get away with one season with, with what comes stock on it, depending on the, um, you know, the quality of them you might want to change out the rest or maybe the site or something. The, the quiver is probably fine. Um, but, uh, the, the other side of it, let's say you, let's say instead of you buying a package bow and you bought a, um, a, a mid-range custom bow, or a custom, a mid-range bear bow. Excuse me. Um, my suggestion would be, even if you're unsure if you want to stick with archery, like this is a trial year for you, I would suggest buying the better. 
higher end accessories such as a, a high end rest, like a drop away, a QAD or something like that. And then also a middle to a higher end site, because if you, if you just, and my, my point on that is if you decide that you want to upgrade bows, you're not making a second investment in an upgrade on accessories. Also, you can just simply take those off, sell the bare bow and then put the higher end accessories on. What do y'all think about that? Yeah, I don't know that I can add too much to that statement because I would agree 100% with it. Uh, pretty much to a T is spend the extra money on the accessories. And then when you are ready to upgrade, upgrade the bow, don't upgrade the accessories. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I, I don't disagree. I, I would add kind of even back to what some of the first points we made is, you know, I guess it really depends on what your plans are as an incoming archer. If if you're if you're if you're coming in with I guess the uh, the plan that you're going to put a lot of time in up front to really close the gap from beginner to you know I mean well I guess you'll be a beginner until you get through you know a certain uh, point of of hunting experience and shooting experience but if you're trying to close that gap quickly and you 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 already know that this is something i'm getting into for the long term i'm not just feeling it out i'm getting into it then i agree go ahead and buy a bow and rig it out with different accessories from around the shop that you're able to put your hands on that are quality stuff that you could transfer to another bow that you know you you, you're comfortable with and and you kind of educate yourself about those things and you you know, you, you make an actually informed decision on those accessories because they're very important. But on the other hand, if you're someone who says, you know, I'm going to buy a package bow and I'm going to shoot it a little bit. And if I feel good enough about it, I'm going to hunt a little bit and I'm going to see where this thing goes. I, I would I would say that, you know, things like like a whisker biscuit, for example, it's a whole lot easier for someone that's new to archery to learn to shoot and keeping their bow in tune and all that kind of stuff, just shooting a biscuit as opposed to shooting a drop away rest where, um, you know, there's more going on there and, and different things like that. So I think there's a place for lower end accessories, um, for a certain type of incoming consumer. Um, it's just, but I would encourage people to, to try different things as much as you can, because I will say me personally, it's, it took me a long time and a lot of trial and error to kind of get to where I'm at now with certain accessories that I now put on every bow. And even if I don't take it to the new bow, I buy another one just like the other because I have learned through shooting a wide range of entry to mid to, to high level, different things of there's just certain things I like. For example, I, I like a one-pin sight. I like an adjustable one-pin sight. I don't like shooting multiple-pin sights, and I've done it many times in many different sights. I've shot lots of different ones, and I've gotten now where I, that's what I shoot. I shoot a certain type of sight, and I do it, you know, for a very specific reason. And so I think, you know, I think, there, like I said, going back to what we said earlier, there's a learning phase that I think you can get into where it's not a bad idea to shoot some of that lower-end stuff until you kind of reach a point where you really know who you are and where you're going with this. And then, of course, your point becomes very valid. Invest in the good stuff, and you can carry that stuff on 
from bow to bow. Yep. So next one, next piece to get in the woods, arrows. Um, I guess we need to, oh, we, we got to talk about broadheads. Damn it. Um, so I'm going to make the broadheads comment pretty easy. Broadheads are specific to draw weight, draw weight and draw length. They need to be specific to what you're able to shoot. Not everybody needs to shoot a two and a half inch rage. Not everybody needs to shoot a single bevel right hand twist. Okay. Um, and so when you're getting outfitted with your bow, depending on your size, your draw length and your draw length, draw weight and draw length, ask your bow tech what he recommends you shoot. It's not the same for everybody. Please do not ask the internet what a good broadhead is. <laughs> Please yes, don't, don't do that. Don't, just but, because they're doing it on the TV doesn't mean it's going to fit your setup that well. I mean, yeah. that, that, absolutely. I had this conversation. Um, a friend of mine had someone, a guest, uh, a guest came and hunt with him and shot a buck about two weeks ago and um, sent me a picture the other day of the same buck. He got a picture of him, and the entry hole looks like a killing shot, and the buck's eating corn in front of a camera, you know, 10 days mm. later. And I, so long to, to make that long story very short, I had a conversation with not him, with, with somebody else. I said, hey, take a look at this picture. I was like, this guy shot this buck like 10 days ago, and they trailed it and decided they weren't going to find it. And then, lo and behold, a week later, he shows up on camera. And I said, look at that entry point. It was, you know, it was a nighttime picture. So with the infrared flash, you know, the deer's body's white and the hole is black. And it's very obvious. He didn't make a bad shot at all. The conversation went to, you know, this is kind of crazy. Like, how do you, how do you figure that? And I said, and I believe when that happened, because we all hear stories like that. These deer walking around with 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 a wound and it's like man you know i've shot a million deer right there and they all died within 100 yards like what's up with that it's broadhead failure in my opinion mm-hmm. it's brought nine times out of ten it's broadhead failure there's one time where some crazy something happens in arrow flight or something but nine times out of ten it's broadhead failure and the most of the times of that is because they're shooting a broadhead that's not set up to be really effective with their arrow and their bow setup yeah that's yep. what it is because if you, Absolutely. I can tell you, I shoot Grim Reapers, and everybody that follows me knows that. I've been shooting them for a long time, and I promise you, I will bet you everything I have that if I make a good shot on a deer from now to the end of the season with my setup with that Reaper, he's done. That's not going to happen to me. Now, I'm not going to say I couldn't hit a deer in a bad spot. It, you know, I still got to make a good shot. But if I make a good shot, I know that my arrow and broadhead setup it fits my bow. It fits what I shoot. And if I shoot a deer in the right place, it's going to leave a, a, a very good blood trail and it's going to die very quick and ethically. And I know that 100%. Do, do, you, know, do you know what your total grain weight is on your arrow setup? I did, but I don't. It's 400 and something, 20 maybe, 410. That's 20. not that heavy. No, that's not. I don't shoot a really heavy arrow. It's not okay. really. It's not light. You know, I don't shoot a speed arrow, but... I, I might be, it may be a little more than that, but it's not, it's not a lot more than that, I know, and I can't remember. It's been a couple of years since I, I've been shooting the same arrows for two and a half years, and I haven't, I mean, I, I just don't remember what they weighed when I set them up. Craig, what, what's, what bow and arrow setup are you shooting in, in broadhead? <laughs> so, I first would like to say, what, going with what you guys said, I couldn't agree more in that I think the broadhead is probably the most important part of your purchase and purchasing and buying the right, the right broadhead to go onto your arrow. 
and again it's not a, a two inch cut diameter uh that you need or or this little profile cut expandable that's going to make the arrow fly the best it uh, it is truly unique to the scenario that you're going with and i mean <clears throat> i could elaborate on that for days of of stuff i mean just just in general my my dad um been around the archery industry forever has been shooting expandables for years and years and years and his overall draw weight over the years has come down and he's been shooting uh, 50 pounds the last couple of years and he had he had some significant issues with an expandable broadhead at 50 pounds sure um, and thinking that hey i'm going to put this big hole in the animal and it's going to die and same exact scenario like you you know he shot it in the perfect spot but it didn't kill the animal and so we switched him up to a fixed blade broadhead that's a cut on contact and um, he's killed uh, watched him kill an elk with a 48 pound full throttle um, and shoot completely through it with a fixed blade broadhead and running a 380 grain arrow so so yeah like so you see that type of scenario you go okay this works really good with this setup and then that's vital right yeah and me and me myself um i I do shoot an expandable broadhead um uh, gosh and i shoot different broadheads just about every year um that i've shot them um some of my favorite ones are i i do like the rage um i don't i don't care for several of the rage um broadheads but the ones that are that have the steeper blade angle on them and i can't even think of what they are right now but there's a couple of the rages that have a steeper blade angle on them and they don't have the huge cut diameter i like those uh, right now i'm shooting some old school omar edges um that are now the sever broadheads uh, okay yeah, that's a so huge cut, isn't it? Uh, the ones I have are only an inch and a half cut. Okay. And, uh, I, and again, back to the same thing, I don't think you need to have this huge entry hole um, because if you're not shooting them in the right spot and that arrow is not performing the way that it needs to, you're not going to kill them anyways. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I, I, I used to be a big proponent on putting a big hole in the animal, and I kind of changed my, my thought on that big time. Um, and so, and then I've shot the fold back style broadheads, like, uh, expandables that are like the Grim Reapers or the rocket broadheads. Um, so yeah, I, I, I tend to, that's my one thing that I like to really play with is different broadheads and seeing how they fly with the arrow and, uh, what they do to the trajectory of an arrow compared to a field point. Cause mm-hmm. inevitably, no matter what broadhead you put on your arrow is it changes the trajectory of that arrow down range in comparison to a field point um so yeah I, I like testing them and shooting them side by side with field points and seeing which ones i can get to stack right next to one another at longer distances absolutely uh, what arrows are you shooting so i shoot and no surprise here I, I probably could say just about any brand but i i shoot the pse um x-weave arrows I've shot those for longer than I've been a sales rep for PSE. <laughs> really? What brand? Are, what? What's what the name of them? PSE what? Uh, it's the Carbon Carbon Force Radio X Weave Arrow. 
And I think I'm familiar with that one. I shot those. No, a lot of a lot of people aren't, and a lot of, uh, quite frankly, a lot of, uh, a lot of guys when they ask me why I'm shooting that specific specific arrow, and why I'm not shooting a, a gold tip or a Carbon Express or an East End or or a Victory or any of those brand names, it, I always go back to the the same statement: is that this arrow has been so strong and so reliable for me that I just can't go away from it. And when I say strong, uh, it's like when you hit a front shoulder of an animal, the the arrow is not the part that fails. The arrow doesn't crack. um, The carbon is extremely strong on it. It's resilient to the impact. Um, Even if the arrow would still be in an animal and the animal goes to run and normally where a shoulder blade or a leg would break the arrow in half, uh, that arrow still sticks together for some reason in the design of the arrow. So overall overall arrow weight that I shoot, though, is it's changed a little bit over the years depending on um, the draw length that I've been shooting. But it's typically anywhere from 385 grains to 400 grain arrow. Yeah. So I'm I'm blending uh I'm blending speed and I'm blending kinetic energy um mm-hmm. w- when I go hunting. And uh, the reason why I believe in that is because if you're shooting at an animal that is say let's say 40 yards or outside of that um and you make a minor mistake and you have a very heavy arrow, um you're going to just completely miss the animal. The the margin of error is very, very high uh, when you're shooting a heavy grain arrow versus a, a little bit lighter arrow that's got that flatter trajectory and a little bit more speed behind it. I agree, a hundred percent. But then, I, but then, uh, I, then I also feel like you hit, you kind of got to blend that with having some weight behind it too, uh, to have that knockdown power behind it. Wow. So it's, I wouldn't say. The people that are chasing 500, 600 grain arrows, I don't think they're 100% accurate in what they're trying to do. Um, and the same thing for a guy that's shooting a 300 or 350 grain arrow and trying to just shoot all speed. Yeah, I think that the, the I think the fair way to put this is the same the, in the same light that we just said. Don't go buy a broadhead because of the commercial that they put out because it might not be right for your setup. And, you know, what What we're saying is just because on this commercial they, they show these animals being shot and they show these big blood trails and these big holes, you have to understand that behind all the marketing, that will happen if that broadhead is set up on the in the right, in the right setting. In the right setting, mm-hmm. that broadhead will do that. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, a Remington core locked and it's going to do it, you know, out of whatever shoots it. And so... In this regard, and we're talking about arrows and weights and setups, it's the same thing. You know, if my opinion is, and it might rub some people the wrong way, but on both sides of that, the guys that are chasing speed and the guys that are arguing about heavy arrows, for the most part, what they're trying to do is eliminate circumstance and compensate for something. And they're trying to make the speed or the weight or the energy, they're trying to make one thing overcome the right thing if if things don't go right in other words 
if I'm shooting a heavier arrow, I don't have to worry about anything because I'm going to have so much energy and force, I'm going to shoot through every animal. Well, you still, you need to shoot the right thing and you need to make good shots, you know, or mm-hmm. I'm shooting so fast that I don't have a big margin of error and it's so fast the deer's not going to move and they're, they're trying, you know, or they're shooting this humongous cut broadhead because, oh, even if I don't make a great shot, the hole's going to be so big that it's going to bleed the animal out. It all Yeah, that's comes, a dangerous thing. It all comes down to you need balance just the same point that you made at the first of this podcast Craig when we talked about how just because a bow technically will go to your size doesn't mean it's meant to sit there it's meant it has a sweet spot and it's the same thing I think for the arrow and broadhead conversation is you need the right spine the right weight the right broadhead configuration and all that that fits your bow the bow you're shooting the speed you're shooting the weight the draw the everything and when that happens you're actually doing a lot better for all of these circumstances you're trying to overcome by saying, oh, I'm shooting such a heavy arrow that I'm going to blow right through everything. To Craig's point, you're probably going to miss deer. You know, you're going to have other issues because of that. Same thing with everything else. Stop trying to compensate for not being set up correctly and not making good shots. Stop trying to compensate with other things and shoot the right thing and shoot good and make good shots. And that, I mean, that's... And my opinion is, in my experience, because I've done this too, I've went through this whole thing with the heavy arrow thing and all that, I've had better success even when I don't make a perfect shot and I have mistakes. When my arrow and everything is right, I'm still better off because my bow's performing at its max. And that is better than my bow, you know, shooting something that compensates for my mistakes. It's still better to be performing at its max if you're in an disadvantaged situation in my opinion and in my experience agree well i think i think we could probably we could probably sum up everything we've talked about in the podcast by if you want to get into archery you need to go to your local archery shop and commit and and commit and commit to it commit to doing it the right way yeah don't don't go oh man do not go into your local archery shop shoot some bows and then go buy it used somewhere else and bring it back in there for them to set up. Um, (laughs) That is not a great way to start a relationship. Um, And like I said, I I think step one to wanting to get into archery is acknowledging that there is not an inexpensive or a cheap way to do it effectively. You will over time, whether it's one month, three months, six months or a year, you will pay more money over time trying to save money than you will acknowledging that you're going to spend between six and a thousand dollars, six hundred and a thousand dollars getting set up with your first equipment, maybe more. Um, and, uh, so go to your archery shop, get, shoot their bows, find one that fits you, that you, that speaks to you, that you feel most comfortable with, that you like, you like, the way it feels in your hand you like how it, how it draws etc cetera, etc cetera. pick your accessories get rigged out ask for help with arrow selection ask for help with broadhead selection and um get it is a custom piece of equipment that that is the biggest reason why archery is such a like i'm, I'm just gonna say it archers and bow hunters we are elitist snobs we are we're we're making the co- the competent decision, conscious decision, of choosing to, to, to hunt an animal about the hardest way you legally can, 
And in doing that, your gear and the fitment of your gear to you is extremely important and a personal decision. So it's not universal. I can't shoot Locke's bow. Craig can't shoot my bow and we hit in the same place. It doesn't work like that. So stop, don't try to avoid the customization and the personalization, the fitment of that bow out the gate. You're going to set yourself up for failure and a lot of lessons learned. Yep. So all good points and good conversations. Yeah. Our, our industry is a, our archery industry is an extremely service oriented industry. And uh, I can't, I can't say that enough. The guys that own their own archery shops or that are managing an archery shop or that are working at an archery shop, they're very good at what they do. And, uh, and they're in business for that reason. They're, they're not just in business to sell you a product. They're in business to sell you a service. Yep. Uh, And to create a, and to create a customer for life. Um, And if, if, if you're at an archery shop, that's not in it for that service side, Go go find another archery shop because there are plenty of good ones out there that want to uh, service and cater towards um, the new bow hunter. Sure, good I point. agree. Well, well Kyle, Craig, do you have anything you want to you want to add to the conversation before we wrap it up? No, nah, it's been it's been fun, and hopefully, get to do it again on another topic. I've, uh, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Uh, we did a good job on the on the new archer, but I have a feeling we have a lot to talk about in the future. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah, funny. we always find ourselves at this point in the podcast going, well, we could ask a million more questions, but we do have to stop at some point. <laughs> some- yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, we appreciate it, Craig. It's been very uh, good conversation and, and enjoyed your insight. And, and, and everything you provide a lot to the conversation we really appreciate it yeah i appreciate you guys having me on yeah thank you brother well um we'll talk soon and uh be safe up there uh, i know y'all season's done now right y'all over y'all done with it there uh we are unique up here in, in wisconsin as i am finding out uh, for recently relocating back up here is that each county has a different end date now um, depending on the deer quota for that specific county. So there are some counties that are still open and uh, some, most of the majority of the states shut down. Hmm. Is, well, is it, a, is it a different end date? Like, like it's a, it's, it's a moving target, meaning if they hit their quota, you know, next Thursday it closes then, or is it, or do no, you know when that end hard, date is? Yeah, it's hard set dates. So it's either January 1st, January 15th or goes all the way to the end of January. Very few gotcha. counties are to the end of January. I gotcha. Gotcha. Well, a lot of, a lot of parts of the state can, can hunt for what's today? The 13th, 12th. Yeah. It'll be, the, fif- like it'll be the 15th when this podcast releases. So we'll yeah, have so we'll, we'll, yeah, another we'll, month, a, a month in parts of the state and a couple weeks in the rest of the state and our surrounding states are about the same. So our general area is end of the month or a couple weeks into february so there's still a little bit of time if you can find deer that aren't scared half to death and completely nocturnal by now yeah craig you can come down here and stay at my camp and i'll put you in a spot and i'll go bake cookies while you hunt 
<laughs> um, maybe I'll stay in and eat the cookies and, and enjoy <laughs> that part of it. Here you go. Perfect. But I'll have to make that for a February trip because I'm about to head down to Arizona here and try to try my luck on a coos deer and a mule deer. Cool. That's awesome, cool. man. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap it up, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.